Thank you, Colton. Uh, I would just like to make a, a uh, <clears throat> point of clarification before I get started. Although I have a wire running up behind my jacket up to my ear, I am not listening to the Chiefs game, okay? I just want to get that out there. Don't, don't, don't think that I am, okay? <clears throat> so this evening, we're going to walk through Mark 10. We're going to walk along with Jesus and the disciples, uh, so to speak, on their way to Jerusalem. Okay, so this chapter of Mark includes a number of vignettes of Jesus' journey on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover. He and his disciples are traveling from Capernaum to Jerusalem for really what the Father had prepared for him to endure. <clears throat> Excuse me. In this chapter, there are six short vignettes showing Jesus, how Jesus loved people and demonstrates he is the Son of God. How he loved people and demonstrates he is the Son of God. As I began to prepare this message, I had some consternation as I tried to figure out what ties these bits and pieces together of Jesus' experiences on the way to Jerusalem. Although these vignettes are very different from one another, I believe two things. There are two things that tie them together. Jesus' love for people, the people he created, and the demonstration that he is the Son of God. So there are six times that we see this, I believe. So in vignette number one is found in Mark 10, 1 through 12. <clears throat> in this vignette, we see Jesus' love and demonstration of his godhood in his teaching on divorce. Scripture tells us that on his way from Capernaum, he came to a region of Judea. Uh, in this region, uh, in verse 2 rather, we see the Pharisees, as they like to do, came to him with a test and asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now this may seem like a simple question, but it was really a trap. We know that in our own time, even among Christians, there has been a huge proliferation of divorce. Divorce in general now exceeds 50% and contributes to the disintegration of our nation. Young people are living together more than ever before with little or no societal pushback. It's a gross sin for Christians to do this, yet we see Christians doing this, just following the lead of our society. Now, the area where the, where the Pharisees approached Jesus was in the region where John the Baptist was executed for pointing out Herod's sin. They likely wanted to get Jesus on record and in trouble with Herod as well. Now, at this time, there were two schools of thought among the rabbis on this subject named after two first-century rabbis, Shammai and Hillel. There was a conservative school of thought, which was the Shammai school of thought, which taught that shameful infidelity was the only reason for divorce. While the liberal school, which was the Hillel school of thought, taught that divorce could be had for any reason, even washing her husband's clothes improperly. Virtually anything could be a reason for divorce. During this time, the liberal view, the Hillel view, was the prevailing view in this area. However, Jesus, the Pharisees rather, were laying a political trap or a theological trap for him or both. However, Jesus wasn't concerned about their trap. He wanted to be true to the Father. Jesus then asked them in verse 3, What did Moses command you? Referring to Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. They said that, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and sent her away 
if he finds some indecency in her. The key here is what indecency meant. This is where the two schools differed in their understanding. Was it only infidelity or was it something as simple as burning his dinner? Again, the Pharisees wanted to get Jesus on record opposing the prevailing view and theological understanding of this matter, which would have been divorce for virtually any reason. But again, Jesus wasn't concerned and wasn't moved by their trap. His desire was to be true to the Father, which is why Jesus made clear to them in verse 5 that the only reason they were able to get a certificate of divorce was simply because their hearts were hardened. Their hearts were hardened. He goes on to speak to them of Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. Quote, male and female he made them. A man shall not leave, a man shall not, shall leave rather his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. He goes on to say in verse nine also, what God has joined together, let not man separate. What God has joined together, let not man separate. God in the Old Testament allowed it in a sense begrudgingly because of their hardness of heart. Originally divorce was intended to have no exceptions, but in Matthew 19.9, we see that Jesus allows it for the condition of sexual immorality due to hardness of heart. So most churches allow this condition. Later on in scripture, we see that the apostle Paul adds the condition of abandonment in 1 Corinthians 7.15, but that's for another sermon at another time. There's a lot of debate, though, about the exceptions for divorce. However, the book of Mark does not deal with those exceptions. We do, what we do see here in verses 10 through 12 is that adultery is the absolute opposite of true love. The absolute opposite of true love. Jesus' love for people is seen in this vignette as well as his divinity being the son of God by the authority he shows in faithfully teaching this truth for our good and God's glory no matter how hard and no matter the risk. For our good and God's glory, no matter how hard and no matter the risk. In vignette number two, which is found in Mark 10, 13 through 16, we see Jesus' love for the little children. MacArthur has been very helpful in this section. Parents were bringing their young children to Jesus for him to touch them. The children were likely from infant to three or four years old. The parents were not necessarily believers or followers of Christ, but wanted Jesus to touch them nevertheless. Apparently they knew he was something, someone special and was a holy man and likely had heard of his power, his love, and preaching of the kingdom of God. Like most parents, they wanted what was best for their children and, desi- and desired Jesus to touch them and bless them. They wanted their children to know God and wanted a spiritual blessing for them like in the Old Testament. It was also customary for parents to bring their children to the elders of the synagogue for them to be blessed by them. They wanted their children to be part of the kingdom. In verse 16, verse 16 says, when the children came to him, quote, he took them in his arms and blessed them laying his hands on them, took them in his arms and blessed them, 
laying his hands on them. The verb here denotes that when he took them in his arms, he enfolded them in his arms like you would hold a baby. He enfolded them in his arms like you would hold a baby. Isn't that, isn't that cool? Isn't that great insight? Jesus loved children. An interesting point here is that we see that Jesus blessed them. Now keep in mind that nowhere in Scripture does God bless someone who is cursed. Jesus never blessed anyone that didn't belong to the kingdom. Now the Jews believed you had to earn your way to heaven by keeping the law, by doing good works. Children this age were too young to do good works and really didn't know good from bad at this age. The fact that Jesus blessed these young children was a huge rebuke to the self-righteous law keepers in the group. The children had nothing to bring and no righteous standing of their own to offer to God and not even an understanding of what that meant. Yet Christ blessed them. In contrast to the rich young man who we will talk about next, they were weak, humble, dependent, and lacked the basic knowledge of good and evil. Yet, Jesus blessed them. They are a great example of those who enter the kingdom of God fully dependent upon God and his grace with nothing to offer. When the parents brought the children to Jesus, the disciples rebuked them for that. What did Jesus do? He was indignant and rebuked the disciples. This is a very strong word here. You might say that Jesus was angry with the disciples for doing that. He said, quote, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He didn't say, let the children come to me if they don't have runny noses, or let them come to me if their hands and feet are clean. He said, let the children come to me and do not hinder them, period. Do not hinder them. Isn't that just a cool insight into Jesus' attitude toward these children? I love that. We see Jesus communicating two important things here. Young children have a special place in the kingdom and you, we, must, we must come like a child to God, to the kingdom. There are no qualifiers here on these children. As to them or their parents having any special spiritual standing, not circumcision, baptism, or anything else. His words cover these young children without qualifiers. Briefly, one school of thought here that MacArthur and Spurgeon both promote, although it's hard to definitively say, is that young children are, are in a special state of grace. Or it might be said, those who die are among the elect. However, it is presented, the idea is that those young children who die are eternally safe with the Father. To quote Spurgeon, quote, now, let every mother and father here present know assuredly that it is well with the child if God hath taken it away from you in its infant days. And as MacArthur says, Jesus' blessing them indicates this special state of grace. Before they reach the age where they can tell good from evil, they are under a special divine care. This state of special grace is conditional 
and only becomes eternal if they were to die during this period. A number of commentators look to 2 Samuel chapter 12, which tells us the account of David, whereby his son, born out of wedlock with Bathsheba, passes away. While his son was ill, David mourned over him. However, when he passed, David calmly got up, washed his face, and said he would eventually go to the place where his son had gone and be united with him, presumably heaven. Regarding the children, John Calvin similarly believed this and is quoted regarding this passage as saying, quote, those little children have not yet any understanding to desire his blessing, but when they are presented to him, he, Jesus, gently and kindly receives them and dedicates them to the Father by a solemn act of blessing. As MacArthur says, this is not salvation, but special divine care because of God's sovereign grace. This whole issue is a much larger conversation and would take much time to fully unpack all the various scriptures. However, the major point I believe Jesus is making in this vignette, though, is that whoever would receive the kingdom of God must come in weakness and humility without relying on their own works or self-righteousness. These young children were the perfect example of weakness and dependency. As Jesus says in verse 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Once again, we see Jesus' love for people and divine authority in this vignette in his teaching that all who come to him and enter his kingdom are admitted solely, solely because of his love and grace as we bring nothing of value on our own. The next vignette, number three, is found in Mark 10, 17 through 31. This is the account of the rich young man. This vignette is quite unlike the children we had just, Jesus had just been with. This young man comes to Jesus, calls him good teacher, and asks Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. Jesus, wanting him to think about what good really means, tells him that no one is good but God. Now, Jesus could have rightly claimed this title, but also note that he never says he himself was not good. Jesus simply asks him why he called him good. The young man goes on to tell Jesus impossibly that he has kept the commandments from his youth, letting Jesus know that he had achieved a great level of righteousness. Note that he felt he had to do it. He was works-based, which was the Jewish system. As Sproul says, the young man didn't have a clue what good really meant. Good is a relative term that must be compared with a standard. In the scriptures, the standard for goodness is God. We all fall short of that standard. The young man was using the term quite loosely as he referred to Jesus as teacher, yet also called him good. It is clear that he was hoping and presumably counting upon his own self-righteousness and thought that his alleged keeping of the law was of great benefit to him, unlike the little children who had no works and were helpless. However, we know that we cannot keep the law, that we are sinners and that we bring nothing to the table. 
We are weak and dependent like the young ones in the previous passage. We can rightly wonder why when asked, Jesus didn't simply tell the young man that he needs to believe and trust in him for salvation. Sproul also points out that the young man needed to understand the law before the gospel. He needed to realize that anything he had done or could do would never be enough. Never be enough. He needed to realize his own weakness and ability to earn eternal life. Nothing he could do, nothing we could do could ever be enough. The purpose of the law is appoint us to our need for the Savior. What Jesus does is tell him one thing remains, that he sell all he has, give it to the poor, and follow him. Follow Jesus. This was something the man could not do. Jesus wanted to teach him that he cannot do enough to earn the kingdom of God. Like us, we could never be good enough. We could never do enough. By his own works-based standard, the young man could not do what Jesus asked him, and he went away sorrowful. Our hope is that this young man went away and realized that his righteousness was not enough, that he could not measure up, and that he needed a savior. He needed to follow Jesus. Jesus then tells his disciples how difficult it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. In verse 25, he says, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. With man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. In verse 27, the key here is that, like the impossibility of a camel passing through the eye of a needle, it is impossible for anyone to enter the kingdom of God without the work of God. It is impossible for anyone to enter the kingdom of, kingdom of God without the work of God. Interestingly to note here also is that Jesus calls his disciples children. Isn't that, I thought that was very interesting. In the last vignette, he had made it clear that no one shall enter the kingdom of God unless they come as a child. This tells us that the disciples were walking with Christ, weak in their own strength and dependent upon him. At the same time, scripture tells us they were amazed and exceedingly astonished by the things he said. So we see that they were still learning and growing and figuring this out as they spent time with the Lord. Peter points out that they have left everything to follow Jesus. At which point Jesus makes clear that they will be abundantly rewarded and will receive eternal life. In this vignette, we see that the rich young man thought he had kept the commandments from his youth, but in reality, he had not kept the two greatest commandments, to love the Lord with all his heart and to love his neighbor as himself. In Matthew twenty-two forty, Jesus says that, quote, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The young man had put his possessions before following Christ. Jesus exposes the greed in the man's heart and that he also, like the children, in actuality bring nothing 
to their salvation. Unfortunately, he didn't realize that in that moment. Once again, we see Jesus' love for people here in that. In verse 21, we read, quote, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Looking at him, loved him. You get the sense that Jesus was pulling for this young man. And in loving him, the best thing he could do for him was to expose the man's sin and weakness. He again also demonstrates he is the son of God by his wisdom and authoritative use of scripture as he exposes this young man's lack of ability to save himself. The next vignette, number four, is in Mark 10, 32 to 34, where we see Jesus foretells his death a third time. Here we see Jesus and his disciples on the road to Jerusalem. Jesus is walking on ahead of them. Isn't that interesting considering what was ahead for him in Jerusalem? He is taking the lead on the way to Jerusalem. Yet we see in scripture Jesus was fully aware of what was coming and that he had a committed, settled desire to do the Father's will. There are numerous prophecies regarding the Messiah's death and Jesus was well aware of them all. In Isaiah 53, this this, uh, includes a rather detailed accounting of the Messiah's mission and what would happen to him as he accomplished the Father's will on our behalf. For instance, verses five and six in Isaiah 53 say, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have laid we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all Jesus knew this scripture well and he knew that it was the father that was to lay on him the iniquity of us all the scripture tells us that the disciples were both amazed and afraid They had an idea what was ahead as Jesus took them again and told them what was to happen. He tells them multiple times. He had just told them clearly in Mark 8.31 what was coming. And then he tells them again in Mark 10.33. He says, quote, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days he will rise the disciples were amazed and afraid it just seems that they missed the part where he said after three days he would rise in this vignette once again we see Jesus' love for people as well as his Godhead in that he knew full well what was going to happen to him in Jerusalem yet he not only did not did not run from it he led the walk into it on our behalf the next vignette number five which is found in Mark 10 35 through 45 here we see the request of James and John two of his disciples James and John whom in Mark 317 uh, whom in Mark 317 Jesus gave the nickname The Sons of Thunder, I thought that was interesting. Sounds like a wrestling tag team to me. The Sons of Thunder. It's not clearly understood 
why Jesus gave them this nickname, although we can be sure he had his reasons. It may have something to do with their nature. We see in Luke 9.54, rather, that when they could not find a place to stay in the village they were traveling through, the sons of thunder asked Jesus if he wanted them to, quote, tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them. Jesus rebukes the sons of thunder and they went to another village. Anyway, they they approached him and they say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now think about that for a minute. What kind of a question is that? Whatever we ask, do for us. Jesus does not simply say, okay. He asks them what they want him to do. They want him to grant them to sit one at his right hand and one at his left hand in eternity. The good thing here is that at least they're thinking with an eternal perspective. They're not simply asking for temporal pleasures. But yet it does seem to be quite self-serving and arrogant. Matthew 20 verses 20 to 28 adds that James and John's mother is involved in them making this request. Now, how embarrassing to have your mom make a request like that. I'm sorry. It is interesting that even after Jesus' comments with the young children regarding weakness, humility, and dependency, they are still looking for positions of power, albeit in eternity. Jesus asked them if they're able to drink the cup that he drinks, essentially asking if they're able to bear what he is going to bear. His upcoming suffering, torture, and death, they do seem to be quite presumptuous and arrogant, or ignorant, rather, of what was to come as they replied, we are able. Their pride and arrogance led them to overconfidence. Their answer should have been no, because they did not understand What they didn't understand was that the cup Jesus was referring to included the fullness of the wrath of God. The fullness of the wrath of God. You see in scripture, drinking the cup most often refers to the wrath of God. Yet in one sense, they did ultimately drink of the cup in that James was the first apostle martyred uh, as he was killed by, by Herod's sword in Acts chapter 12. And John, although he dies of old age, Tradition has it that at one point he was boiled in a pot of oil and miraculously survived. Jesus goes on to tell them that to sit at his right hand or his left hand is not his to grant. He said it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Such a great comment here by Jesus as it clearly speaks of God's involvement, sovereignty, and planning in all things. At this point, the other ten Disciples become indignant towards James and John. Perhaps they wanted to ask the same thing. I don't know. Or they didn't like how presumptuous and assuming they were, the others were, at, were to ask such a question of Jesus. Jesus then points out the leadership style of the Romans and how they lord over the people. They are harsh and difficult rulers. Jesus is using them as an example here to the disciples as he teaches them that desiring power over people is not what he wants for them. Jesus is recalibrating their thinking on how a follower of Christ must conduct themselves. What is most important in leading and shepherding people, his people, 
in verses 43 to 45, 45, he says, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' love for people and the fact that he is the Son of God is so clearly communicated in this vignette in verse 45. Again, he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That said, following our Savior's example, how much more should we be willing to serve others? Verse, vignette number six, which is found in, March, in Mark 10, 46 to 52. Here we have the account of Jesus healing blind Bartimaeus. So in this final vignette, we find Jesus and his disciples leaving Jericho. Jericho is roughly five miles west of the Jordan River, 18 miles northeast of Jerusalem. <clears throat> Archaeologists uh, say that New Testament Jericho, which is different than Old Testament Jericho, but quite close in proximity, is one of the two oldest cities on earth inhabited by people. The other being Damascus, by the way. It was an oasis in the desert. It is worth noting that this vignette is situated right after the disciples were vying for who would be greater in the kingdom of God. Bartimaeus, however, didn't ask Jesus for a high rank in the kingdom, but simply that he could see. As Jesus and the disciples were, are making their way to Jerusalem for the Passover, there was a large crowd traveling along to hear the teaching of this rabbi. Jericho had a temple with 20,000 plus priests, all of whom could not serve at the same time. So there were likely many of them lining the way to hear what he had to say. Surely there were many that were not trustful of this, quote, crazy rabbi and were just curious. As they were leaving the city, they come across a blind beggar, beggar uh, named Bartimaeus sitting on the side of the road. The text says in verses 47 to 48, and when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, calling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. It is likely that Bartimaeus was rebuked by the crowd because he was a nuisance and creating a disruption when they wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. Bartimaeus was not dissuaded by them, though, and continued to cry out to Jesus, calling him the son of David and asking for mercy. By calling him the son of David, Bartimaeus likely knew he would be better able to get Jesus' attention, for one thing, in the noise and throng of people. While I was thinking about this vignette, I remembered when I was a little boy, my dad took me to a Chicago Cubs game. My dad knew one of the players from his time in the minor leagues in Dubuque, Iowa. You see, my dad had a restaurant there and where all the minor league players had credit and ate many of their meals uh, at my dad's restaurant. So dad knew many of the players that went on to the big leagues. Before the game started, when the players were warming up, we went to the front row where many people were calling out to this particular player that my dad knew for an autograph. 
The player just kept warming up and didn't come over to the fans. Well, instead of calling the player's name, Dad simply yelled out, Dubuque, Dubuque. Immediately, the player turned and came over to talk with us and was so happy to see my dad again. You see, my dad had a connection that most in the crowd didn't recognize. Most importantly, though, Bartimaeus was convinced that Jesus was the Messiah and was acknowledging that by calling out his lineage. By calling him the son of David, he was referring to Jesus with one of the most profound messianic titles. This would certainly have gotten Jesus' attention. He had a connection with Jesus that most others didn't have in that crowd. In addition, by saying, have mercy on me, Bartimaeus is recognizing his own weakness and frailty and that he has nothing to offer Jesus. The only thing he can do is throw himself upon the mercy of Jesus for his healing. When Jesus tells his disciples to call him over, Bartimaeus throws off his cloak, springs up, and comes to Jesus. We get a sense of how overwhelmed and excited Bartimaeus is at seeing Jesus. As one commentator says, he throws off his cloak to get to Jesus quickly, keep in mind that he was blind and didn't know where his cloak would end up in the crowd. Also, most blind people that I have known don't typically spring up for anything and move quickly for fear of tripping and falling. Nevertheless, Bartimaeus is throwing off what hinders him and moves to Jesus as fast as he can. Jesus asks him what he wants. He says to have his sight restored, which Jesus does. Jesus tells him that his faith has made him well. What did Jesus mean by this? He meant that Bartimaeus' faith was that Jesus was the Messiah. He trusted in Christ and that he was the promised one. Hebrews 11.6 tells us, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Bartimaeus believed in Jesus as Messiah, sought after him, and was rewarded for it. Scripture also tells us that Bartimaeus did not just go home on his merry way, but went on to follow Jesus on the way. In this final vignette, once again, we see Jesus' love for people, in particular, his love for Bartimaeus. In healing him, he also clearly demonstrates he is the son of God by this miraculous healing, as well as his not correcting Bartimaeus for referring to him with the messianic title, son of David. In summary, in these six vignettes, we see Jesus' love for people, and his demonstration that he is the son of God in fearlessly clarifying and lifting up God's intention for marriage from the beginning, which is for his glory and our good. We see it in his love and teaching regarding those that come to him in complete dependence and trust like little children. We see his love for the rich young man and authoritative teaching and pointing out the hard truth 
of where the young man's heart really was. We see his love and godly shepherding of his people by making his way to Jerusalem where he will be crucified in our place. As a matter of fact, we see that he not only made his way there, he led the way there. He led the way there. We see his love and divinity as he recalibrates the disciples' thinking by pointing out that, quote, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Finally, we see Jesus' love and Godhood in healing Bartimaeus, the poor blind beggar that came to him in weakness, dependent upon and hopeful of Christ's mercy and with faith and confidence in the son of David. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you so much for this time. We thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would help us all, always, to remember that we bring nothing of our own to the table. We have no righteousness, no righteous standing to even come before you. It is all because of you. It is all a work that you do in our lives through your Holy Spirit regenerating us and bringing a dead man to life spiritually. Thank you for that, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.